Welcome into the show. It is Daniel Werman coming to you live from the Dreamagine Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call. It is Monday, April 29th. Hope you had a good weekend. Had a busy weekend. It was a good weekend, but uh, busy. And uh, it was also busy in other parts of the world as well with some, some really cool things happening. Uh, for example, north of the border, um, if, you, if, you, if you haven't heard, there is a brand new football league, soccer league, that is kicked off in Canada. And it is, it is part of their preparation for getting ready for 2026, but it's also something that has been long overdue. Uh, so, you know, look, let's give it up for, for Canada. They have launched the Canadian Premier League. Um, look, this is, this is a good day for North American soccer. Canada needs their own league. So look, let's let's give them their due. It was uh it was actually it was actually a good day for them. Uh, the inaugural match, York Nine FC and Forge FC, ended in a one-one draw, but there was over seventeen thousand in attendance. So look, that's worth celebrating right there. Um, is a good day, and look, hopefully, uh, for American soccer's sake. Uh, the, these Canadian MLS franchises uh, get get involved with the Canadian Premier League. Um, America's big enough to handle our own teams and our own league. So, anyway, uh, so that that was good for them. I'm glad that, that kicked off, and 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 uh, they've got seven teams. They're going to play 28 matches, 14 home and away. Um, you know, there it seems to be that they are trying to to build a league and eventually build into promotion and relegation. The seven uh, teams are independent clubs that are, have come together in this league. They are not franchises. That is a very, very, very important point um, where, where the, the control in terms of individual team operation is with those clubs. And um, and so I look forward to following their progress, and we should all be cheering them on because it's actually it's better. We we need Canada to have a viable league that is is growing the game north of the border. More competition in this region is better. It also uh, would would help strengthen what we would want in terms of a Champions League. 
uh, in CONCACAF, etc. So uh, really hoping that, that they uh, continue to, to do that work and pull it off. Also this weekend, my favorite club in the world won yet again, La Liga. And so uh, just for a moment, just need to celebrate FC Barcelona. And um, if, if you've been sleeping under a rock, they're the best club in the world. They are... They have the best player in the world, and if you think otherwise, um, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. The guy is amazing. Messi's amazing. But his goal, his goal came because of an incredible run of play uh, that, that led up to that moment uh, by Dembele. Dembele, when he, when he is back and healthy and playing, that Barca team is is incredibly better, incredibly better than with Coutinho, and it's it's not uh, it's not even close. Uh, Dembele is is beautiful to watch, and uh, and he he had some incredible play leading up to that to that goal as well. So, kudos to to my favorite club in the world, Barcelona, and um, and to uh, to to be able to watch them celebrate the title last year uh, they they clinched it on at an away fixture last year and then i went to uh iniesta's last classico and that was the uh, the, the first uh, weekend of may and that was their first home match since clinching the title so they didn't clinch the title last year at home they clinched it away but at their first home match after clinching the title it was the Clasico against Madrid and to be there and watch them celebrate and uh, that was an incredible night 2-2 draw and and Messi Torres Ronaldo and Bale all scored even though I would have preferred the win it was it was one of the greatest uh, nights of my life, just watching, taking all of that in, celebrating the title. Um, it, it was it was amazing. So, you know, you, you see, like, these really cool things happening around the world. Another, another thing that, uh, that I want to uh, highlight and point out is that uh, Club Leon's men's team, this is down in uh, Liga Emeke, Club Leon's men's team bought all the tickets for fans who attended their women's game versus Club America. They gave the women a guard of honor and they watched the game from the stands. Um, that was really, really, really uh, a cool moment this weekend. And I think we're going to start. I think this is going to be a trend. I think we're going to start to see these things uh, start happening more and more uh, where these clubs and even the men's teams at the clubs are going to start to celebrate and elevate. And, and all that's going to do is create even more pressure on the U.S. Because we, in, on the women's side, have traditionally been the powerhouse. And we have produced the best players. And in some cases, and in many cases, we have won because of superior talent, individual talent. Not necessarily because of great team play we've just had incredible players and it's not that we are uh, not continuing to produce individual talents but as a collective when a when a a nation figures out how to play like recently watching spain versus the u.s um, that match was it, it was it was a tale of two philosophies if you if you were able to see that match a couple months ago, the the this, the Spanish women's national team were possessing the ball and just playing all around the U.S. It, and it took some counterattack goals to to eventually uh, pull out the uh, the win for um, for the for the the U.S. And so you know we we've got to. Um, um, We've got to do some things, and and as these leagues continue to build and put more and more resources and more and more time and more and more focus into the the women's game, uh, we are going to see that that pressure and that that hurdle that we're going to have to keep climbing or getting over is going to get higher and higher and higher. So hopefully, hopefully, 
just like with everything else we talk about on the show, hopefully we start to make some progress. Uh, we, we, for whatever reason, have just been enamored with status quo for far too long, and it's hurting us. Um, it's hurting us in the men's side. It's definitely hurting us in the women's side. It's hurting us in youth development. I saw uh, this weekend as well that uh, youth participation in youth soccer is down 4%. These trends are not going in the right direction. So, you know, as much as U.S. soccer wants to beat the drum that we're making progress and we're doing all of these things and, you know, we've we've created a committee to talk about governance or talk about youth soccer or talk about this or talk about that. The, the, The facts are the facts and the facts are that simply this, that the trends are heading in the wrong direction everything is trending in the wrong direction where we were already behind. And if we keep going in the wrong direction, that means we're getting farther and farther behind, not catching up. So, you know, it's, it's critical that we begin to, to think about how we do what we do and start figuring out how we can do that better and improve as a country um, you know, we sh- we should have the best women's league in the world because we've traditionally had the best women's program in the world. But those days are going to be over very, very soon as leagues like in England and, and across Europe and in as, you know, uh, the, the league in, in Mexico and, and other places begin to pour in, in, in resources and investment and time and money into the women's game, you know, this idea that we're going to, you know, launch a women's league based on major league soccer re 1996 and start over. I mean, they've literally pulled out the playbook of women's soccer from 19 uh, men's soccer from 1996 and said, Hey, let's start a women's league. Let's do the same thing we did with MLS, and let's just wind the clock back twenty plus years, and start over and and try to build something. and And it's not working. It hasn't worked. And you know, people complain. Well, you know, why isn't there a, a team here? Why isn't there a team there? Well, it's because it, it's because of the setup of the league. You don't have the ability for independent ownership groups to build a club, buy a club, et cetera, and bring them to the top on their own uh, fruition and their own experience and their own expertise. They have to they have to pay entry fees and beg to get into the NWSL, and the NWSL is the ones who decide who's in or who's out. They only have nine teams, and, you know, it's it's just – it's it's sad. It really is. It's sad, um, and, and it needs to change. It needs to change very, very quickly – uh, to for us to to stop falling behind or losing ground that we we should have in the U.S. in terms of our women's program, the sponsor this uh, this show today is Charity Water. Charity Water it provides clean drinking water to people all over the world, and uh, that that clean drinking water changes their lives. It provides opportunity. It also provides education if you don't know about charity water check them out at charitywater.org we will be right back <laughs>
Welcome back to the show. I am pleased to be joined by Terry Mickler. Terry, how are you doing? Hey, Dan, I'm great. Thanks for having me on. So um, we have a mutual connection in John Townsend, um, and he he just raves about your work and and about your your coaching and your philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. And before we get into all of that, just give us a little bit of background. Like, you know, how did you get started in the game and and fall in love with it to commit your entire life to the to this beautiful game we call football? Well, a couple of things. Um, first of all, um, I'm 71 years old, so we go we go back quite a ways now. Uh, so I was growing up in the in the 50s and went to high school in the 60s. And uh, St. Louis uh, at that time was thriving. I mean, with with soccer, I was fortunate that I had an uncle that played at a high level in, in the St. Louis area. So as a young kid, I, I started following him. And through that, uh, I just really, really got an attachment to soccer. I also played high school football and uh, dabbled with other sports, you know, in grade school. But but soccer was the one that stuck. And then through high school, I played on championship teams <clears throat> and, excuse me, I was able to get a college scholarship and played a year with the Kansas City Spurs in the old NASL. So, it, you know, it's just something, it's just something that kind of grew over, over years. And then, uh, then as in my adult life, I really got attached to, uh, to the Dutch and Ajax, uh, especially in the 1974 era when the Clockwork Orange was the rage of the world. And uh, from then, you know, it just kind of maintained a, a, a plateau. And then it, as, uh, as I got older, I got a chance to actually go to Holland in 1997 for a 10-day coaching course. And, uh, you know, I think as I'm getting older, it's that plateau is rate is elevating. You know, I'm getting more and more of an interest. And uh, so, I, you know, I seek out whatever I can find in terms of information. <clears throat> I'm an avid reader. I love to read. And in reading, I find out so much information about soccer in, in different ways in different places and how, how we could be doing it differently. And I like to try to share that. And I had a great experience when I went to Holland in, uh, for that coaching course. We had 10 people in the course, two Dutch instructors, and their first opening statements to us were, <clears throat> we're going to tell you everything we know so that you can make soccer better where you're at. And I thought, my gosh, what a, what a statement that is. So I've kind of kept that with me and, and tried to live that out as best I can over the years. That's a that's a great way to look at coaching education and, 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 and being a leader in the game. Uh, so you, you you had a playing career and then you transitioned into coaching and you talked about this trip to to Holland um, and you know just a quick aside it, it has to be uh, a lot of fun and joy watching this current generation of Ajax play uh, and and seeing the success they're having in the Champions League um, how how has the Dutch philosophy of clockwork orange and, and just that entire mentality of, of of kind of total football and all of that how has that influenced your your coaching oh hugely believe me let, let me re regress one quick second what i find when i uh, in, in dealing with people in the states when they when they find that when they have something to share they put it in a vault you know over over the years i found that People that have made have opportunities to make trips abroad and come back. It's like I've got a secret, and you're not going to know it because if I tell you, you might beat me. You know, so our mentality is so different. And that's one of the things that I like about the Dutch is that they're very, very open. You know, here it is. Here's everything we know. Take it back. Make it, make your program better, and then we have to get better. That's the second part of their statement. That we have to get better. You know. So how has it changed me? Well, I'll tell you, simply, it's, it's changed my perspective. I see things differently now than I ever did before. And I think I see things differently than a lot of people do when I look at things. And I, for, for that, that's, there's good and bad in that, you know, because when you try to change too many things with too many people, you run into a lot of resistance. And I'm sure you're very well aware of that in your dealings and from your approach. And people really don't want to they don't want to come out of their comfort zones too much. You know, they're very comfortable where they're at. Uh, life's good for what they're doing. Nobody's 
challenging them to do anything differently. But, you know, is the game any better? You know, I mean, in some ways we can say yes, in some ways we can say no. Game, game needs to improve, you know, and that's the issue. So my perspective has changed tremendously the way I look at things. So you began coaching in in what year uh, in terms of uh, you were at CBC for for how long? I've been my first year at CBC was 1971 school year 71 72, and I'm still there now and still in the classroom this year and be back on the field next year. And in that time, what's your overall record as as the coach there at CBC? Oh, I only know a little bit of it because everybody keeps throwing it at me, but the wins are nine, 990, and the losses are in the 250, 260 range, and then there's you know a number of ties, but the wins are 990. So, so we're we're anticipating breaking the the one thousand mark next year, right? I mean, that's that's what that's what we're all looking for. Well, the only thing I can tell you for sure is I'm ten games away from it. Whenever those ten games, those ten wins occur, we'll celebrate it. <laughs> you, you know, when you're coaching, you don't you don't put anything in the book till after it's the final whistle. So, but yeah, you know, we play about thirty games a year. So, uh, I only had one year, I think, over my career where I only won ten games. So. The rest of the time, we're we're good. So so, I want to go back because you you are a unique case in terms of coaching. Most coaches don't have longevity at one place. They move around quite a bit, um, and and or or they get out of coaching altogether. You have been there since the early seventies. You're still there. And you're still having success on the field. What kind of give us an, a glimpse of of what it was like in the towards the beginning of your career, kind of in the middle of your career, and now present in terms of coaching sure. and dealing with players and dealing with parents. That's a good question because uh, you know I go we go seventy, eighty, ninety, two thousand, and now two thousand and ten So that's I think five uh, cycles there. Uh, first of all, I'm coaching at a place where I attended. I went to CBC High School, graduated in 65. And when I left, my goal was to come back and return back and be their coach. And then I went to Kansas City, went to Rockers College uh, in Kansas City, uh, played soccer there, got an education. And also signed with Kansas City Spurs for a year. And it was so ironic that uh, I had just recently signed with the Spurs in February, I think it was. And uh, I happened to even be in their office. I remember, I tell this story all the time, I remember. And I got a call from CBC. Uh, they were offering me an opportunity to come back and coach. And I'm 21 years old, I'm single, and I just signed a contract with a professional uh, NASL team to play. And I said, doggone it, you know, I'm going to have to honor this contract. Because, first of all, because I'm young and, and it's something I really want to do. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to say no to CBC. I thought, there, there it goes right there. I just shot it right out the window. Well, as luck would have it, the team only lasted a year, two years in Kansas City. CBC called me back again. And at this time, the team was gone, and I was like ready to come back. I said, thank you very much. And uh, that's that's where how it started. But I got a little bit of a lucky break there in the beginning. And when I came back to CBC, it was a, it was a very vibrant school. It was, it was always a, a, a junior ROTC school back in the day. So, you know, as we went through the, the 70s, the ROTC was not very popular with uh, with what was going on politically in the country. So our enrollment in the 70s really started to suffer a little bit. And as you lose enrollment, you know, it affects everything and it affected our, our sports programs as well. Uh, we maintained our, our certain degree of success. We weren't as successful, but we still kept our head above water. In the 80s, we took off. Our, our The 80s was a huge decade for us. We won uh, five state championships and finished second three times. I mean, we were we were the dynamite team in the 80s. In the 90s, we had really, really good teams, uh, but we were a little bit unlucky. And then in, since 2000, we've won uh, four more championships, uh, and we've been pretty pretty solid, pretty consistent. So the ups and the downs, okay? The, the kids, for the most part, uh, play soccer a little differently than they did in the past because it's gotten to be so much more structured as we know. 
there's so much less street play, you know, the street soccer element, playing in the schoolyards, playing with your with your friends in the neighborhood. That isn't quite there anymore. Uh, some of that has to do with society, and some of it has to do with with parents and the fact that parents are a little bit uh, apprehensive of letting their kids out of their sight very long, especially when they're younger. You know, but more importantly, I think parents have changed more than anything else. Uh, back in the day, there was you you know you always have your little bit of parental interference, you know. But uh, once the parents start paying for their kids to play soccer, all of a sudden the parent has gotten much more knowledgeable and sophisticated, quote unquote, you know, in soccer, and they know more than the coaches do. So you run into some problems there because your idea of what the kid is might be different than what the coach that's getting paid to keep your kid on, on his team thinks about him. So you run into conflicts and that's only natural. It goes with the territory. So, but over the years, I mean, I really can't complain. I had a minimal amount of uh, what I would call serious kind of in interactions with parents. Uh, by now I've, my reputation is pretty much out there. Uh, people know what I am and how I, how I operate. And I'm not saying that that keeps them away, but at least it keeps them at a little bit of a distance. You know, so over time, you kind of maintain, you prove yourself. And uh, the reason I stayed where I am, I had an opportunity earlier in the career to, to look into other opportunities. And I thought at that time, that's kind of what I wanted to do. But I decided against it, and I'm glad that I did because I've, I've really been happy where I'm at. And after that early uh, consideration of maybe another another opportunity, uh, I haven't looked elsewhere. I haven't strayed at all, so. I'm back right where I wanted to be, and I'm thankful that I've been able to be there. I've had a great situation, great kids, great administration to work with, and um, I've been really fortunate to have the success over the years that I've had. But another part of it is I'm, I'm an ongoing learner. So for me, you know, today I want to find out something I didn't know yesterday. I want to learn something today I didn't know yesterday. I want to be able to apply it and share it and make what I'm doing better for the kids. So for for someone who has had that length of a career and that kind of success in your career, there's obviously got to be some some philosophies and and some kind of principles that you hold as you know priorities in order in order to determine you know success and build success in your program. So what is what is your your general you know philosophy for a team as a coach what are you trying to what are you trying to do are you trying to play total football like what's the mentality uh, that you take into building a team philosophy i got three statements that i use with my teams i ask them to work hard to play smart and to be productive and those things kind of guide me. I like to have fun too. I think, you know, it, you, you got to be able to balance what you're doing, you know, and, and have a little fun with the kids, right? They're not professionals. They're, they're high school kids or adolescents. They got a lot of things going on in their lives, but I've been lucky because the kids that I get are very, uh, they're highly motivated. You know, they come from good programs, good youth programs. They come because we've got a reputation and a tradition that we've been able to, to uh, be successful. And they want to be that next successful team. So, you know, that helps a lot. And then the other big thing is I like to keep it uh, simple. But in keeping it simple, you know, I like to think I know right from wrong, good from bad. So I'm a little bit demanding, okay? I'm a little bit demanding. And sometimes that runs rubs the kids a little bit the wrong way because they may not have had that uh, presented to them previously. But I try to make a point that, listen, I'm pointing this out to you because if you can change this, you'll be better. If you're better, we're, we're going to be better. And they all want to be get better. But sometimes, again, they like to get, you know, they, they like their comfort zones. And when you take them out of it, you got to be able to put them back into another one. So if you can't change it, if you can just see that it's wrong but not change it, then you're really not helping them. You're just creating more of a problem. So it starts with being able to see what you're doing recognizing right from wrong, good from bad, and then being able to put them in a position where they can improve it and then congratulating them on their success when they finish it. So, you know, those are some of my, my basic guidelines. Not anything really elaborate, you know, not overly over-the-top sophisticated. Uh, soccer's a team game. So, I, I, you know, within that, you have to have great individualism as well. But you got to be able to balance and blend the two. Uh, that's always been another principle of mine is that, 
you know, I'm not going to tell you everything to do because the game's too free-flowing and too dynamic. When you ask me what should I do, I'm going to ask you back, what do you think you should do? But I can't tell you every situation. You know, it's not like football where you can put a guy and get a, a wire in your helmet and tell you what to do every every play. you got to figure it out. So my, my approach to that is the training has to be varied. I, I'm big on small-sided games because I think that replicates uh, the game. And when I visit IX and I look at IX videos and stuff, they have a, a, an ability to break down an individual moment or sequence in a game and put it into training. So it, it makes sense that this, the quicker a player can recognize the situation and act, act on it, the better the outcome should be. So, you know, that's another one of my guiding principles is to try to replicate the game as best I can in practice. So the games are something that, uh, you know, isn't overwhelming that they've already seen it before and they can react to it. It, it is often said about American players that we don't lack for physical ability or, or in some cases, even technique, right? And certain, you know, skill and certain things. But one thing that's often talked about when, when you're looking at American players, especially when you have these conversations with coaches from overseas, is they note that the, the soccer brain, the soccer IQ, the kind of soccer mentality, whatever kind of terminology you want to use, is often not up to par. The processing of the game is not at a level uh, equal to someone their own age that's grown up, say, in Spain or, or, in, or in the Netherlands or in Germany or England, for that matter. What, when you're developing players and you're developing a team, how important is that for you? Are you trying to develop that soccer brain? What What are you trying to kind of instill instill into your players so that they can process the game at a higher level? You know, that's you hit the nail right on the head. And I think a lot of that, uh, you know, what the the typical American profile for the for the player is that they're very highly driven, highly motivated, very competitive. You know, they want to win. They'll fight to the last whistle, but they might run run through the brick wall instead of trying to figure out a way to run around it. You know, where the other the other kids like there's a there's a story I read about the Dutchman in a, in a book somewhere that uh, the mom took the kid out to, to play and uh, but they had to go through a certain entrance to get into to the way they could play and that entrance wasn't available. So instead of standing there wondering what to do next, the kid sought out another way of getting in there, found another entrance in, and was able to play. Where the, the other part of the analogy was somebody stayed at that door and tried to knock it, knock it down and break their way in because they didn't think of another way to get in. So small-sided games for me does that as best as possible where it recreates the game and it puts kids in situations where they have to see what, what's in front of them and then they have to process a solution. Uh, I look at soccer and, and, and technique and tactics kind of like this way. You've got to, if you're a skilled uh, uh, laborer, okay, a skilled uh, uh, workman, you got a toolbox. And in your toolbox, you have a variety of tools, okay? And every tool you have serves a certain purpose. Now, American soccer players, in an analogy, could have the nicest toolbox in the world. They could have all the best tools in the, in the box. But when it comes time to use the right tool in the right situation, they don't know which tool to pick out. And that's the difference. The European players, they grow up playing in a different environment, first of all. You know, they play in the streets. They play in the cages. You know, they play unstructured, unsupervised. And you figure it out. They know when a situation comes up which tool they need to use to solve the problem. So the game of soccer really presents a lot of soccer problems, and they have to be solved in soccer ways. And you have to do that through technique, but you have to do it through an understanding of what's the best solution. And I watch these MLS games all the time. And my gosh, the, the mistakes that are made and, and the giveaways and the, the lack of attention to detail, it's alarming. I mean, it's just really, it, it's staggering. And, and it just keeps, week after week, game after game, it just keeps building up. I don't see any change. The only change is when you see a Carlos Vela or Ibrahimovic or a Rooney, you know, you see the, the pros come over from, from over across the seas there, and they have such a sense of patience and calm, you know, that they just do the right thing at the right time. They make it look so easy. You know, and our guys are working their butts off and, like I said, beating their head against the wall to the last drop of blood comes out. And the other guys are just kind of casually playing and making the game easy. 
that's the that's the key. You know, you you got to be able to use the tools of the game, which are the skills, and you got to use them in a way where the decision making is, is is evident, which is tactics. And you want to do it in a way that looks easy. You want to make the game easy. When you're when you're talking the game with your players and kind of like what you were just doing there with Major League Soccer and you kind of look at, you know, okay, hey, here's a handful of players. They're obviously showing calm. They're showing composure. That's a word I like to use a lot under pressure. It doesn't matter. There's people coming. It's okay. It's fine. I've got the ball. I can handle it. Or or I may not have the ball, but I know exactly what I need to do to get in a position to, to get the ball, et cetera. When you're having this conversation with your players, what, how are you teaching them to process those moments where they can process the moment faster so that they can play more calm and play, in some cases, slower in terms of their output? Well, think of where a lot of these, the environment most of these kids come from. They come from a, an environment <clears throat> where they're playing with either, either or a screaming coach yelling at him all the time from the sideline or a sideline full of screaming parents that are yelling to kick it, you know, send me, boot it, you know, all that kind of stuff. Where if you had a quiet Saturday where nobody could say anything and just let the kids play, it might over time make a difference, you know. So to answer your question, you know, when I point that out, like I might show them a, a video clip or something and point it out, you know. And and then, then the next thing is when you go out in training, then you got to set it up situations where the big thing is if if you can build support in your play okay when a player gets to this is what i what i see lacking in in the uh american mentality is you don't have to do it on your own you know this is a team game so it's the player it's always the players that are not on the ball that make the difference for the player on the ball does the player have options where do the options come from they come from the players that aren't that don't have the ball you know, everybody's done analysis of, on an average, a player has a maybe maybe a maximum of two minutes ball contact during the course of the game. So the question, and I have two questions always about that. One, what are you doing when you have the ball? How successful are you with the ball when you have it for, for that short period of time? And two, what are you doing the rest of the time when you don't have the ball? You're still playing. The game's going on. So you've got really got to be involved. So the, the, the help is you got to build support from players off the ball. Everybody has to realize that they've always got to be a part of the part of the play. You know, they're part of the, the solution, and and it's just sharing sharing those moments. If I have the ball, I need you to help me get. I need you to get open to help me out. If you have the ball, I have to help you by getting open. It's just shared moments like that. I um, I'm a musician. I I I've grown up playing in in different instruments, uh, and my my mom and dad are musicians. So that's kind of in, in, in our family, music's in our family. So one of the things that I often attribute or, or look at when I look at soccer is I feel like that, that a team is kind of like an orchestra. And I was, I was in, in kind of preparing for this uh, interview. Mm-hmm. I, I, I saw where, where you look at a team as an orchestra. And so I was like, ah, he, he sees it like we kind of, I see it from the from the musical side, but I, I love the fact that you kind of made that same connection as well. Talk a little bit about your view of of an orchestra and and how that view uh, defines or describes how you see a soccer team, a collective of players working together on the field. Sure. When I, I've got a, a team building PowerPoint that I use, uh, I show it to my team and I do it when I do coaching education uh, sessions, I show it. <clears throat> and it's a, it's a, uh, the slide is a two part slide. It's one part is, is a, is the pieces of a puzzle and they're all different colors and they're all different shapes. Okay. And the second picture in the, in the slide next to that is the completed puzzle. And the analogy of the puzzle and the orchestra are very similar because the puzzle is made up of a lot of different individual pieces that are different, that are uniquely different, that have to fit together. And when you put it together and it works, you come up with a really nice presentation. The orchestra is the same way. Every one of those musicians in that orchestra have a certain function to perform. 
and they're doing it with different instruments and they're doing it to, to in in their own way led by the person up in front the conductor okay and he has to bring he's the coach he has to bring all of that together at the right time in the right way to produce the right sound and when they when it happens it's beautiful and uh, you know if you want <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm going to the next thing I'm going to say is if you ever watch the old Andy Andy Griffith shows and they've got a segment in there where the town band is marching around trying to get the money together to go out of town for, for some festival. And they're horrible. They're, they're got awful horrible. They're out of tune. Everything's wrong, blah, blah, blah. There's a visiting group that comes in that, that, that is a professional band. So they dress the professional guys in the costumes of the local guys. And they march by the mayor to get his approval. And as soon as they get the approval, they switch, go back, go back. And then the, the mayor, then the bus, they load the bus and they go out of town. And then the regular guys are back in the bus. And it sounds terrible again. And the mayor goes, "What? I get tricked? Yeah, you got tricked, mayor." So that's the analogy of the of the orchestra is that you got to have the right pieces all coming together at the right time. Puzzle does the same thing, and that's the same thing with the team. If it's going to be functional, it's got to come together. If it's too many individuals and too many people going the wrong way, too many people going on their own, not being led, it's dysfunctional. Simple. You have coached championship teams multiples over multiple decades so winning is not an accident it is intentional it's a process it's something that you have figured out ways to build championship level championship caliber teams and and have imparted to your players the ability to rise to that moment rise to that occasion you know consistently and and has led your teams to become championship teams talk to us a little bit about a winner's mentality what what is that to you how would you define that kind of winners slash champion mentality uh, and how does that differ from someone who doesn't have a a winner's mentality yeah, well, it starts with a buy-in, okay? Um, I could do the same thing with a different group of, of kids that uh, that wanted to do it their way. And, you know, over the years, we've all had our different experiences where, you you know, it's been good or bad or in between, right? So I haven't had a championship team every year, although I've had championship aspirations every year. So I set the standard high. Uh, the kids come in with, with their own standards, and they, we, we – we share a standard. That's number one. Okay, so the tradition that I that I uh, coach in, this, this actually it was there before I took over as a coach because I I was part of a part of it building it as a player. It was there when I came in in the '60s. It was already there from the '50s. So it's been there for a long, long, long time. So that's number one. The standard of, of play. What is the standard of play? Number two. What is the expectation? Well, and then number three. How are we going to go about doing it? Okay. Well. We go about doing it because strength is in every player. If you know the good teams always seem like they have more players on the field than the other team does, and that's because they work together and they share the ball and they work hard. They have a high work rate and a high work, high sense of togetherness. Okay, so that's huge also. And then you got to you got to have the right players in the right position. That's that's the biggest thing. You know you've got to be able to, to, to score goals. You know. One of the one of the segments that uh, a video segment that, that we have from our camp, one of our Dutch coaches is talking to a group of kids at camp and says, you know, what's your priority when you play? What's the most important thing you think when you play the game? And they said, uh, score goals, score goals. And he says, yeah, okay. He says, but I have a higher priority than that. He says, you know what that might be? And they couldn't come up with the answer. And he says, that's to win, to win. First, you want to win the game, and you win the game by scoring goals, and then you win the game by scoring goals and denying the other team opportunity to score their goals. So those are the basic principles, right? But the starting point was to win, okay? Now everybody says, you know, the, the, the winning isn't all that important. Well, winning is important, but how you win is more important, okay? Winning is important. How you go about trying to win is, is, is for me, very important. So if you're putting together an idea of winning through team play and you build up that team play during the course of your training, and you've got the players that are buying into that and working together. If you've got a, if you got a good team to start with, if you get them to buy into a team concept, they're a better team 
and and sometimes that might be the difference in the long run. They have a better team than they have the better individuals. So it's about building a team, and the team is like that orchestra we talked about in the puzzle. It's getting kids to buy in and believing in the guy next to them. You know, and that's in the when you see interviews from championship teams after the championship game, they usually talk about you know how much it meant to work together and how how together they were and how much they worked for the guy next to them. You know. And, and all the little things along the way, the, the demands the coaches made, the extra work, uh, and, and it all paid off, okay? So the, the, the flip side of that is the vision you have to have going into all that. What's it going to be like at the end of it? Well, put that in the beginning of it. Start with that and then build that as you go through. So it's kind of a whole part, whole thing. Here's the whole thing. Let's do the parts of it. Let's see if we can't get back to the whole thing. So when when you are when you are evaluating, okay, how do I how do I take a team and and find the right parts? You know, I'm looking I'm looking to develop winners, I'm looking to develop champions, I'm looking at developing quality technical players, tactical players, etc. How are you evaluating the individual parts, the in, individual players and and communicating that evaluation or that feedback? back to those players? Well, first of all, for me, I value the, the, the little things. I always tell my kids that little things make big differences. So I'm an attention to detail kind of a guy. Okay. So to get to the answer to the question, and I just, the other day was just plotting out some stuff for next year's tryout uh, with, the, with the kids, but so what, what is it that a forward should do? What, what are the characteristics of your forwards? And your forwards should be your go-to goal-scoring kind of guys, right? So are, they, are, these, are these the kind of guys that have a knack for scoring? What, what are you looking for? What am I looking for in those kinds of guys? Am I looking for the guy that's a great build-up guy? Am I looking for the guy that's running all over the field, you know, and, and getting X, X amount of uh, miles and built up during the game? Or I'm looking for the guy that when the moment is there, takes advantage of it best strikers in the world usually are the guys that don't aren't the hardest working guys they're not the guys that you see running all over the place but they're the guys that are at the right place at the right time so you got to create a situation where you know in, in, in evaluating the players you've got to be able to see that so you set up situations where you put these guys in front of the goal you know and, and how are they how good are they in front of the goal when the moment is there that's that's what they have to do the midfielder, they have to find the next guy. So you set up activities in the midfield where you force them into into, into decision making. Can you find that next play? Maybe you set up multiple goals, you know, in an area, and you value each goal differently with points. And then you play two two teams against each other in that in that in that situation. And at the end of it, which team got the most points because they found the best goals. You know, they found the most goals and they found the goals that had the highest value. And the backs have to defend. Usually, most often, they got to defend that space behind them. You know, that's the key thing because behind the backs is the goal. So you create situations where they have to defend the ball in front, but they also have to defend the space behind. So if somebody can beat them on a dribble or beat them on a penetrating pass, boom, the next thing you know, they're in on goal. So how well do these players, how well can they react to those situations? So it, it has to be functional. You know, you have to put players in position in, – in position, you have to evaluate them in, in positions and situations that you're going to be playing in the game. Otherwise, you're going to be shocked and surprised when the game rolls around. You find out you got guys out there that can't do what they need to do in the positions that they're in. So tryouts, I don't think, should really be generic. I think they need to be specific. You know, if, if you if you find a guy in trials who can juggle the ball 18,000 times, what does that mean in terms of his ability to play the game? It doesn't really mean anything. You know. If you find a guy that can score the goal that's just kind of the next guy might not be able to get, that's the guy you want, you know. So it has to be specific to to, to uh, position. I saw where you you made on on kind of your playing philosophy sheets that I, I was looking up. One of the things that you you said at the very end, and I, I love this this quote. In soccer, the action of the legs is determined by the brain and the heart. And it's and it seems to be that that your uh, coaching philosophy and, and what you're trying to impart to your players conduct as an orchestra as an orchestra conductor with your players is all about preparing them 
to be able to execute uh, on the field in a match and and understand when to run, where to be, when to be there, when to execute, etc. How how has the the player of today how have they how how do they differ in terms of their understanding with having more soccer available on TV than than players of 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago? How have those players that you're seeing today are they starting to comprehend by watching some some leagues, maybe their domestic or, or or international are they starting to process that and figure this this thing out before they get to you or or is the connection still not quite being made yet uh, before they they come in, in into your team that's a great statement uh i would kind of classify it into like wishful thinking uh the kids today have better brighter shoes you know they've got uh, fancier moves um but they really don't have the, the savvy and the understanding of, of game situations that you'd like to think that they do, that they should have. So as much as it's available and as much as they might watch, I think they watch it from a highlight perspective rather than from a, a, a you know a run-of-the-mill perspective. They're not watching it the same way that you'd like them to watch it as a coach, okay? So – I had a discussion the other day with somebody or the players today that are getting recognized. Like, you know, locally we have Josh, Josh Sargent that's played at Verder Bremen. And, you know, that's so exciting for, for, for us to be able to say we have a, a young player in that kind of a program. But are the, are the players today that much better than what we had in the past? And I say, I don't think so. But I think these players today are getting more of an opportunity than what our players in the past might have gotten, you know. And so if we were given some of our players in the past the same opportunity, I think, you know, we'd have a few more guys from, uh, that would have done the Josh Sargent routine than we, than we have. But the opportunity for him is there today than it, than it hasn't been before. So, no, for me, it's still, you know, one of our Dutch coaches comes over and he uses the term, you run around like a chicken with your head cut off. And I tell my guys, you know what, sometimes the best thing to do is not do anything at all because they'll run through spaces that if they just stop, they're in the right spot. You know, and I'll walk them through that. I'll say, okay, here's what you did. Started here and ended up there, and by the time you, there was no play for you. If you would have either stayed right where you were and let everybody else run, run with, run away from you, you'd have been wide open. Or if you would have taken two steps or three steps and stopped, you'd have been wide open. You'd been in a pocket where we could have found you and used it, right? But you watch games today and you see this flow all the time. This, you know, this defensive flow. And if if you flow with them, then you're just staying right in sync with them. For me, it's always been that soccer is a game of opposites. So if they're going to flow, I'm going to stay. If they're going to stay, I'm going to flow. You always got to do something opposite and not in sync with what the other team is doing. And, you know, and I, I just don't see that. And I think that starts very, very young in the process of, of building the player, you know, which is in the individual uh, tactical moment that, that you can instruct the kid that's 10, 11, 12 years old, you know, about how to get, how to get themselves open, you know, when to run, where to run. It's all teachable. Those are teachable moments. Um, but I don't think we, we do a good enough job of that because when they're getting, when I get them at my age, I still got to go back and, and reteach a lot of that stuff. So they're better on the ball in some ways, but I don't think they're any better in, in, in situational play than, than they were, nor, nor should they be, or, or, the, or they should be. So situational play, I think, has to improve. And that's all mentality, tactical mentality. So looking at american soccer at large and kind of zoom out from the st louis area and just look at at the country at, at large if if you were granted the ability to change anything you were you were king of american soccer for a day um you had the ability to, to change something or to to uh alter uh whether it's a system whether it's it's a mentality, whatever the case may be, what would you, what would you look to do? What would you look to change from a, from a macro level, uh, national type level? I appreciate you asking that question, Dan, because I, I said this to people in the past. If I were in that position, I would draw a line in the sand right now. And every 
six or eight year old kids that's starting to play in this in this this system would play in a different way. And everybody beyond that line could choose to stay in the system they're in or join the new system. But I think there has to be an overall from the very beginning. You can't change from the top. You know, it's, it's, I was really flustered, concerned, surprised, shocked or whatever. When the Developmental Academy came on board a couple of years ago, whenever it did, and they started at the upper ages. They started at the end of the developmental process. It's hard to make change then, you know. If you're going to do something of that magnitude, I think it should be a progressive thing that starts at the, at the fundamental, at the base, at the root level, maybe at 12 or 13 or 14, but not at 16, 17, and 18, you know. So I would, I would do that, and I would have a whole different approach to where the free play is critically important. Kids need to enjoy playing. They need to love. They need to develop a love for play, and you do that by letting them be free to play. You know, and they're not so structured. They're not in lines doing drills. They're not playing in a way that they've been told to play. They need to have that understanding of, you know, how the game is is on their terms. They need to see the game on their terms, right? And then there needs to be some kind of a developmental plan, an organizational plan. So at at each age group, like the youngest group, it's discovery. The next group, it's development. The next group, it's creativity. The next group, it's discipline. You know, then the next group it's winning, and then it's then it's professionalism. There needs to be an approach and a theme in each developmental age group, and I'm saying developmental age group like a two-year period. You know, so you start with development, you go to you go to uh, you go to discovery, you go to development, you go to creativity, you go to discipline, you go to winning, you go to you go to a fulfillment stage, a professional uh, progressive stage. What I got now, I got kids that are finishing up uh, their high school careers and they're done. They're not even going on to play college soccer for the most part. We used to have about an 85, 90%, maybe even a 95% rate of kids going on and playing college soccer. Right now it's down to about 15 or 20%. They just, they've had enough. They, you know, the senior, uh, 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 senior night is the last big thing that they do. It's unfortunate. So I would draw a line in the sand. I would have a whole different approach, you know, and, and try to see over time. I also have this uh, one of my one of my points in, in my PowerPoint. I have a microwave and a crockpot picture, and unfortunately, our soccer has become too much of a microwave. You know, hit a button, get it done, and be done with it. Move on to the next thing. Whereas a crockpot takes time to simmer and 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 be finished, a finished product. Soccer is not an overnight sensation type thing. It's it's a process. It takes a minimum. 10 years to develop, to get the player to a point of development. You know, and each part of that, there's a stage of development that has to occur. You can't be doing the same thing in the beginning that you're doing at the end. you got to work to the end. So I would I would do that. I would try to have some kind of a developmental plan that co- covers all the different stages of development over a period of time and uh, start all over at the very beginning. Well, Terry, thank you so much for coming on the show. It is like walk. Uh, talking, excuse me, with a with a library. You're you're like an encyclopedia of not just American soccer, but but global soccer and and your mentality, your approach, your decades of experience are just oozing through uh, through through the system and coming into my ears, and I know it into to everyone, every listener's ears, and just the expertise and the experience. It's just it's great to to learn from someone like like yourself who um, very very similar in 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 the the kind of impact that you've made in in the um, program that you've built. You, you built culture when you've been at a place that long with that kind of success. You built culture. Uh, in a, in the same way like Coach K has done with Duke basketball, and you and you see that longevity over decades, uh, it's no fluke. It's not an accident. So when someone like yourself, a wise sage, speaks and 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 gives us insight and lessons and um, you know some thoughts about what we can do to be a better soccer country, or when we look at the micro level of coaching teams and and developing players and developing talents. Um, it, it was it was great to he- to get your insight and your and your feedback. Uh, how can people connect with you? Um, I know on Twitter you have at CBC Dutch Touch. 
is your your Twitter name? Is there is there any other ways that they they can get in touch with you or or be able to learn more? Do you have in terms of any books or things like that that you you put out? Yeah, I didn't know I had a Twitter thing. I'm not a Twitter guy, but uh, uh, I do have my Dutch Touch. Um, you can I I think you can just Google me and you can find Dutch Touch CBC Dutch Touch. But the the uh, probably my Email is probably the easiest way, and it's it's my name, M I C H L E R T at C B C H S dot org. That's probably the best way. And uh, and I've had a lot of people over the years uh, through the Dutch Touch program reach out to me from different parts of the country with the situations and questions. And you know, I, I really feel honored when they do that, and I hope that in some way I can help them a little bit with the response. Um, I want to share three books that I just read with, with you guys because these are awesome books. <clears throat> One of them is called The Edge, E-D-G-E, and it's how the top thinkers in the game share ideas about their programs and their, their mentality or approach to uh, soccer, Edge, E-D-G-E. Second one is called The Club, and it's how the EPL, English Professional League, resurrected from from near bankruptcy in the mid-'80s to where it is today and how, how that all took place. It's an interesting book, interesting read, because they really developed a lot of their ideas off of NFL football, which if you listen to Robert Wilson, who you had on recently, you know he thinks that MLS soccer should not be anywhere close to NFL football, and I totally agree with him. And the third book I'm just re- finishing now is called Building the Yellow Wall from uh, uh, Borussia Dortmund. Incredible book. And what I find when I read these books is that a lot of these uh, situations are, are not, you know, they're not as they seem to be. In other words, as, as impressive as uh, Dortmund is today, they were on the verge of, of uh, not even existing in, in 2005. The EPL was about to go bankrupt in the mid-80s, 1985. But look at where they are today because somebody took a chance, you know, stuck their neck out, took a risk, and saw something down the road that they had a vision. They had a vision, and they followed through on it. They researched it, followed through on it, and they brought the thing back, resurrected it. So those are three books, The Edge, The Club, and Building the Yellow Wall. And on my website, on the Dutch Touch website, I've got a list of a couple hundred books. <laughs> you really want, to, really want to get into more reading, so cbcdutchtouch.com is the website and then mickler t at cbchs is my email those would be the best ways to contact me dan i really appreciate you having me on um i enjoy your program i've, I've uh, been able to, to watch it and listen to it a number of times and uh, good stuff thank you very much Thank you for coming on the show, and thanks for, again, on your way out, you're still dropping wisdom and books and things that for us to, 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 to get into and read. It's it's great. Thanks for all your work, and good luck uh, this next school year on uh, reaching 1,000 wins, and uh, we, we will be keeping an eye and and, uh, and watching, so when you, maybe when you hit that 1,000 mark, we can get you back on and and do another kind of uh, look back over the decades. Uh Thank, thanks again for your encouragement, and thanks for coming on the show. All right, Dan. Thanks for your program. It's wonderful. It's what soccer needs. Take, keep, keep it going. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Appreciate it. That was Terry Mickler of, of incredible, incredible career, and and uh, he is a legend and the winningest coach in, in American soccer history, uh, high school coach. Um, when he speaks, we should we should definitely listen. He's got a, a, a bunch of great ideas. Check his stuff out. Check the books out he recommended. Uh, there are things to learn uh, all over the world that can make us better as a country. Thanks for joining the show today. Thanks for tuning in each and every weekday. This week, we've got a packed lineup of incredible guests. Um, tomorrow... We have another legend in the game who has been in the game for decades, Dave Laraba of the West Virginia Soccer Association. Uh, on Wednesday, we we have uh, Tommy Muller Nielsen, who is the Ma- uh, Manchester United scout and uh, coach in Denmark. Thursday, as we as we keep building through the week, we have Levy Bird, who used to write for Sports Illustrated, a coach. And then on Friday, Eric Winalda stops by. 
Um, and uh, he is now the, the coach of the Las Vegas Lights Football Club. And uh, look forward to having him on. And uh, I'm sure we'll have a few laughs on Friday. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you tomorrow.